0: Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements.
1: No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film.
0: This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together
1: By connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Welcome to The Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Most weeks, we discuss a film that is connected in some way to the film we watched the previous week, except for weeks like this week, where we start a fresh double feature. And the only caveat is for all of these films, they must be a part of the Criterion collection. We'll also be highlighting new additions to the collection as we did last week, hidden gems on the Criterion channel, like we'll do this week and more. I am Mackenzie, and this is my lovely co-host, Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Mackenzie. (laughs) This week, we are discussing a biggie. Spine number 140, Federico Fellini's, eight and a half. Can you tell I've been practicing Italian on Duolingo? I can. <laughs> Grazie. <laughs> I know. Ecco il menu. Here's the menu. I'm learning how to order in restaurants right now on Duolingo. <laughs> there
0: we go. There we go. And next, are you going to be practicing your Catholic dogma?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know me. There's one thing that I do is recite Catholic dogmas. Oh, Ian, how are you? I'm
0: doing well, Mackenzie. How are you?
1: I'm doing it swell. Swell and well. Uh,
0: it's been a minute since it's just been you and me because we had our first guest last week. What a fun yes. episode. If Amazing. people haven't listened to our The Red Shoes episode with our friend Guti from The Real Latinos podcast, please go check it out. It's a real treat. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because I haven't heard about what you've been watching oh. and you've got, I think, over three weeks of viewing to choose from. <laughs> So got to tell me uh, one or two things. Ugh. What have you seen since we last spoke in depth?
1: Oh my gosh. I am looking so frantically through my list. Um, I think I'm finally attempting to get into some more of the channel stuff. Cause you know me, I always say I'm going to watch that. And then I never do. Well, <laughs> I finally started uh, diving into the Greg Araki series, the three by Greg Araki on the channel. Um, before this, I'd seen The Living End, which is, I mean, a lot of his films are kind of about feeling that anger from the AIDS epidemic, but this is, The The Living End is very much the movie that is, like, about AIDS, Um and it's very, very good, and uh, I also watched Smiley Face, his stoner comedy, Nowhere, the f- one of the last, I think, in his Teenage Doom trilogy, so because the Criterion Channel is amazing and is offering more of his films, I watched the first film in the Teenage Doom trilogy, totally fucked up um which is i liked it a lot i i I waffled a bit i ended up giving it four stars i couldn't quite tell because it's one of those movies that like nothing actually (laughs) happens literally at all like a lot of his teenage doom trilogy i believe at least from the two of the three i've seen are just kind of teenagers meandering and feeling angry about the world and like i don't know especially with this pride month and how stuff has felt politically lately I just think we as queer people need to be angrier. (laughs) We need Mm. to, we need, I don't know. I love watching films from new queer cinema because it feels like they're filled to the brim with that sort of activist sensibility and that type of anger that was coming out of the Reagan administration that I, I, I just, I I know that that's still there here in some sense, but uh, I want to feel it more. And so I kind of love watching movies like this because it is just teenagers meandering th- through the world, but there's obviously like threading in these themes of the AIDS crisis and uh, gay bashing and what it feels like to be othered by your parents and by society and all of these things that I think are still really relatable today. And I don't know, he, I, um, I think not, nowhere. The other film I watched was described as 90210 on acid. Uh, and I think that all of his films can kind of be described as that. Cause they all have that kind of Valley girl, type of speech patterns going on and i i kind of love it it's just so los angeles and um i recommend on the tr- on the channel if you if you go to the greg rocky three by greg rocky i watched the 30 minute like interview he did or maybe it's 10 15 minutes actually but i watched the interview he did about his films and it's so good i love just hearing him talk about his movies and his sensibilities uh and hearing how connected he is to los angeles and how like la is his home and that is like the type of like like. LA and the sensibilities of that area like infuse within his style and his queerness in a way that I think is so brilliant and lovely. And it kind of contextualized the way the characters act for me. So, as always, the curation on the channel is really great. And I recommend watching that video. Um, but it's great. You've seen some Gregoraki, haven't you?
0: Only one. I actually dipped into the three by Gregoraki as well. And I watched uh, The Doom Generation, I believe the namesake oh. of uh, the trilogy itself. Mm-hmm. Um, Loved it like so much. I am totally here for uh, chaotic bisexual energy. Um, yes. <laughs> I would never call myself chaotic, but maybe uh, chaotic neutral. Um, <laughs> but no, this is just uh, exactly what you're saying—like meandering around, being mad about everything. Um, I think it's a little bit more plotty, um, but at the end of the day, it's really just about that angst, as you're you know getting at, at you know from the Reagan administration and stuff like that um rose mcgowan uh in like a really early <laughs> performance really really interesting um this other guy who played um a, a very minor role in independence day he's like one of the kids in independence day that's like i don't want to die a virgin what um but he's yeah have you seen independence day i have not seen independence okay day. well you know there's there's a, there's a there's a very 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 minor subplot in which these two teenagers are like i don't want to die diverge into each other like literally every 25 minutes <clears throat> they just say that to each other um, <laughs> okay uh because it's about the end of the world aliens yada yada whatever it doesn't matter um but that guy is in this and he's doing like his best Keanu like stoner impression. And it's like actually oh. really works for the vibe. Um his name is uh I
1: think James Duval. Yes. Yes. He's James in Duvall. all three of the Teenage Dream trilogies, and he's like the lead guy in like at least the two I've seen. He's the lead in nowhere and uh and totally fucked up. So Oh,
0: well, he plays a very um uh kind of sub uh to rose mcgowan who's also uh curious when it comes to like the more um uh dominating uh you know very sexually promiscuous like mysterious and also just not sure what's totally there like a very dangerous other third guy uh well the third in the group but the other guy um yeah liked it a lot um but aside from that i went on a little journey while you were on vacation, and I started watching all of uh, Todd Haynes's filmography.
1: Yes, I did see this.
0: Yeah, and I've uh, finished all the narrative features but two. Still haven't seen Velvet Goldmine. It's mm. uh, sitting on the shelf, waiting to be watched. And I haven't seen Poison. Not Mm-mm. sure where to watch that one. That one might have to get rented. Um, but I think obviously at the top of the list was Carol. That a beautiful Ooh, film so
1: that was a first watch for you right
0: it was a first watch uh oh, just oh, yes. added to the canon of just absolutely exquisite and lovely sapphic romances that are just like <laughs> per, you know future perennials rewatchable as all get out um and then obviously the channel as we highlighted a couple weeks ago they put up safe which is his like breakthrough feature and so as well as uh, Julianne Moore's breakthrough acting performance and I loved that as well. Um yeah, I I I I just really found that one to actually be like incredibly potent because I've been going through like a lot of existential dread about the climate crisis as well as just like where we're all going as a society. Um feeling a lot of doom lately uh like our like our like our older counterparts in the doom generation and totally fucked up. But uh you know it also just works so brilliantly as a reminder of like what the queer community has gone through because it's very clearly a allegory for the AIDS epidemic um you know and it's even it's it's very unsubtle about it which I really appreciate it I think subtlety is somewhat overrated a lot of the time um and I really appreciate the uh very delicate touch that Todd Haynes has to unsubtle subject matter and just kind of not beating you over the head with it, but also not being coy about what he wants to say.
1: Yeah, it's I think Safe is so brilliant because it's like he's filtering this allegory, right, of AIDS through a presumably cisgendered straight woman. And so he's like, hopefully, I presume, finding a way not to alienate cis straight audiences with the story, but he's like, yeah you're right not being subtle about it but being so deft about it and also layering in these other themes of of climate change and of you know body shaming and diet culture and kind of even evangel- the evangelicalism of diet culture and like i just feel like there's a lot of and like health culture and doctors and like i just think that there's just such a brilliance to the way he's able to stack those layers and they don't they don't tip over they're just they're so yeah. beautifully placed um safe yeah. is like one of the most brilliant movies i've watched in a long time and I, I'm so glad yeah. you loved it.
0: No, I loved it. I caught Dark Waters, which is an underrated masterpiece. Like, that's an amazing legal thriller that came out the end of 2019 and got totally forgotten about because the COVID-19 pandemic would happen four months later. Um, got snubbed at the Oscars. Mark Ruffalo giving a career best. Anne Hathaway, wow. um, kind of in defiance of the thankless wife role, gives an astounding performance in a thankless wife role. Um hmm. I also, I hate hate to list all of the ones that I watched off, but I want to get to the last one. I also caught Far From Heaven, which I didn't love. Caught, I'm Not There, which I also didn't love, but I would love to rewatch. It definitely is begging me back. But the final one, and one I want to recommend to you because you have not seen it, is Wonderstruck, his family film.
1: Yeah, I've never seen that one.
0: It is so beautiful. If people want to know more about what I thought about it, they can go read my Somewhat lengthy letterbox review, but it's just such a beautiful experimentation of cinema and storytelling. It's based on a largely illustrated children's book by the same author as Hugo, which was adapted into the Martin Scorsese mm-hmm, film of, mm-hmm. of uh, the same name. Um, and it's just uh, incredibly visually imaginative. It's about the story of a young deaf girl growing up in the 1920s, told in parallel with the story of a young boy in the 1970s who ends up going deaf by an accident and they're like stories of self discovery running parallel no spoilers but they are connected at a very deep deep level through time um across time rather Mm. so um yeah i just think it's a really lovely and magical movie and just one that makes your heart go you know awe um Hmm. And it's very artful, like even when making a family film, Haynes is like obviously so interested in experimenting and trying new things. There's a lot of things done with the sound design and the engineering and also just the music um to put you in the headspace of somebody going uh deaf and losing their hearing mm. and also just like experimenting with the fact that like part of the story takes place in the silent film era, and there's a deaf character in that, so he's playing around with um deafness but also silent film and it, it That's so it's just really fascinating and really exciting i highly recommend people go check out wonderstruck i think it's very underrated
1: i love that i will check that out i'm saying i can i can watch it literally right now on amazon prime so i will have to check it out perfect
0: yeah it is such a good movie and uh yeah so it's a very easy to watch as well
1: before we move on, I'm just going to touch on it because we could talk about it more next week. I did see the new A24 Past Lives. Buzzy movie coming out of festivals that's finally releasing wide. And if you are listening to this podcast now, it is probably wide-ish. I know it's having a smaller run, so you might be able to see it. Um, but I know my dear Ian is planning to see it. So maybe we'll talk more about Past Lives yes. next week.
0: We, we will, Mackenzie, as we have chatted about in our DMs it is unfortunately not playing in my city this week in which it is supposed to be going wide it is supposed to be wide weird today we are recording june 22nd it's supposed to go wide on june 23rd and i have been obsessively checking show times in fort worth texas and there is <laughs> nothing so i will be driving to dallas this weekend and i would love to chat with you about it then um
1: I mean, as Kev likes to joke, is there anything between Los Angeles and New York or whatever. I don't know where he pulls that from, but that joke always makes me laugh. Um, but sometimes uh, that is how it be with movies somehow for some reason.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't get to see Worst Person
1: in the World until eight months
0: after everybody else in the world had seen it.
1: I uh, definitely pulled it off Turnip Truck because I was like, I'm not waiting for this. <laughs> mm, mm, and I okay, pulled Petit okay. Mabot off a turnip truck the exact same day. <laughs> mm, <laughs> I was really forget. going through it. Oh, my gosh. And I watched Worst Person twice in the same day. What's wrong I, yeah, with me?
0: Very good. Very good Letterbox log from you, that one. <laughs> yeah. Just about finding a new film and wanting to show it to somebody immediately.
1: Yeah. I mean, I talked to Rachel's ear off about it. And she was like, well, then put it on. And I was like, yes, yeah. I'm watching this twice. Okay. Well, and now it is time to move on because Criterion Channel's July lineup has been released. And it's another big one. I mean, as always, the channel is just doing some amazing stuff. We got to talk about the things we're excited about. Ian, what are you seeing that's being added in July that is like popping out at you that you're really pumped to check out?
0: Oh, Mackenzie, there is so much, too much <laughs> to get into. in just, you know, this short little segment that we do here on our little show. Um, but there are a couple of things I want to highlight real quick. One thing is a film that I've actually already seen. Uh, and I want to push people towards it. It's going to be uh, under the Women Filmmakers banner on the Criterion channel. And that is a film by Carla Simone, summer 1993. This is a coming of age tale set in the summer of 1993. And um kind of calls back to something that we were talking about with Haynes. It is about a uh, little girl who is born to a mother who has contracted HIV. Mm. And so by default, this young child is born with HIV. And it's just about her growing up this one summer in 93. It's not a very sad story as that brief synopsis would lead you to believe, um, but it is somewhat melancholic in moments. Um, But it's just a very beautiful slice of life portrait. Think Selinskiyama vibes. Think Petite Maman, Mm -hmm. in fact. Uh, Just take out that magical realism and you've got yourself a heaping platter of summer 1993. Uh, That is something I would really highly recommend people check out this month if they have a Criterion Channel subscription. If you also have a movie subscription, you can view it right now. Um, mm. But if you don't have a movie, check it out on the Criterion Channel. Uh, but what am I excited to check out for the first time? I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> Stanley Kwan is a filmmaker I have come to adore over yeah. the past year or so. I just recently re-watched Rouge, his uh, seminal new wave romance. And they are bringing to the channel a collection called stanley kwan's new wave melodramas and it's going to have rouge in it it's going to have something i just recently watched lan Yu, which is a uh gay romance that was made in mainland china uh actually that's a very interesting film that film was made uh covertly it was illegal to have been made and so they had to make it in secret and smuggle it out of the country
1: whoa what um
0: yeah very good film yeah, Lan Yu, i Y U. I'm adding
1: all this to my watch list while you're talking to me.
0: It's a fantastic movie about um, an older gay man falling for a younger gay man who he is uh, contracted for sex, but they kind of fall in love with each other. And it's about the societal obligations that the older man has to his family, um, and the kind of like whirlwind romance that the younger man is going through because he's you know very naive and. Young. Um, yeah. So yeah. That's a fantastic film. I highly recommend people check it out. Um, but one I've never seen on the channel, Love Unto Waste. That is what I'm very excited to see. And then aside from that, they are putting out this incredibly interesting program called AI, mm, um, mm-hmm. as in artificial intelligence, with some amazing films in it. Just to name a few, uh, Johnny Mnemonic starring Keanu Reeves after Yang, which i know a lot of our friends love
1: Mm -hmm.
0: uh ghost in the shell the anime uh her the spike jones film which i'm not a fan of admittedly but it's kind of cool that something that big is coming to the channel and then the one that's been on my radar for years and that i think you and i are both excited to see yes artificial intelligence by steven spielberg of all people
1: yeah i've been dying to watch this i think someone recently talked about it on the the letterbox show i think with their four faves and i was like what is this movie about uh i am so fascinated to watch this i think it's really cool speaking of big things that a spielberg is coming to the channel that's that just feels really really cool
0: yeah um i think i mean yeah i agree i think it's really neat that a steven spielberg film is going to be on the criterion channel um one of my favorite film critics, David Sims of the Blank Check pod. This is like his favorite Spielberg. Hmm. And um, yeah, anyway, every time I can check out something that leads me to a, back to a Blank Check episode, I'm excited. Um, but yeah, Mackenzie, aside from AI, what what are you excited about? What Look through this list. Tell me what pokes out to you.
1: Mostly we also want to point out that they have a Bjork music video. That's just a part of the AI thing, which is so oh, funny. Really? Debate. Yeah. I just thought it's a, it's a parenthesis. <laughs> oh Bjork yeah. Music video. I was like, okay. yep. Um, yeah. What am I excited about? Um, I do want to, I feel like I have to, cause it's part of my ADP brand. I gotta, I gotta acknowledge the Elvis in the room. There's a huge, uh, collection of Elvis films coming, uh, to mama. the, uh, mama, mama. Um, they don't like my, my hips mama. Um, no, they, uh, <laughs> he's not necessarily a, uh, a good actor in my brain uh, I've, I've seen a couple of his films as I watched when we were preparing for The Bazzlerman Elvis as you can hear in old episodes but I am excited to watch Viva Las Vegas because Anne Margaret is in that and that was one I couldn't get my hands on around that time and so I'm excited to have a way to watch that um, but I did watch Jailhouse Rock and it's it's fun, he's, doing, he's very young in that movie and so if you're interested in just seeing where the iconic Jailhouse Rock sequence came from, it's a fun watch um, I also kind of want to check out King Creole just because that seemed fun when I was researching it a bit and um yeah I might check out some of that Elvis I think his movies are fun but Viva Las Vegas I'm watching for Anne Margaret baby uh something else that's exciting to me is there's a lot of Rossellini uh there's a lot of uh, Isabella and Roberto her father uh Isabella Rossellini's doing an adventures and movie going which even if I don't watch all of the films I love watching those series and just watching people talk about the movies they love and why I'm a huge Isabella Rossellini fan I think she you know I mean she's the daughter of Ingrid Bergman one of the greatest actresses to ever live and I think she's a great actress in her own right uh and I just love listening to her say things um she, you know, was in Marcel, the with shoes on as the grandmother and the way she goes, Marcello, me and Rachel say that literally all the time in our house because we have a little Marcel and, and he, we put him, um, this is insight into our home. He, he lives in between our Shabbat candles and I got, I made him a kippa out of an orequete pasta. So he has a little, Mar- Marcello has a little kippa, and every time we light our candles, we say, Marcello. Um, so Isabella Rossellini is always present in our home. Um, but she's picked some really fun movies, like Chaplains The Circus, The Thief of Baghdad, La Strada by Fellini, who we're talking about today. And I was hoping to catch before today, but now I will catch it when it comes to the channel for um, her adventures movie going, And yeah, and a ton of Roberto Rossellini films, 16 movies by him. I have no idea where to start with those, but I might check out. At least Rome Open City, because I know that's his big one. Um, and yeah, other than that, I mean, there's just so much great stuff. A lot of the stuff that's in the collection, the co- collection editions look really great. Once Upon a Time in China, the uh, Smithereens, which is a film I've been wanting to check out. A lot of great just editions. Definitely, I'm gonna check out some Stanley Kwan, because it seems like all of his movies would so be my vibe. I really want to see Center Stage. That's the one I really. He's watch. like
0: he's the he's the very rare uh, queer chinese filmmaker who was like not pushed underground or pushed out of the country like he's been able to continue operating his his films ha- occupy a very unique space and um ever since i saw rouge for the first time i have fallen madly in love with his work it's just it's so good
1: yeah i gotta check it out oh my god uh, and honestly possibly one of my favorite chunks but that's the last thing i want to leave us on is there's this section called hollywood hits of just random movies they're adding and all of them are films that i've been wanting to watch for so long uh and in an all-time fave breathless which is uh a young dick gear as i call him in my with, with in my group chats with my friends i have watched like seven richard Gere films this year according to my letterbox stats i don't know why i love richard gear so much but i do i've been wanting to watch breathless since it just got that new edition i think right from is it arrow or vinegar syndrome just released uh it, i think it is vinegar syndrome actually and it's still available you can watch in 4k i've been it's been on my radar since then um so i gotta check that out barefoot contessa the namesake of my queen Ina garden uh, and a film that stars my man Humphrey Bogart. Can I, I can't even think of a better intersection of my interests in than this, in this film. Uh, and it's, I, I'm glad they'll be streaming now. Some movie I've never heard of with Harvey Keitel and Madonna named Dangerous Game, WTF. I'll, of course I'll watch that. And then, of course, our beloved Showgirls is coming to the channel for some reason, and I am so fucking here for it. I love that.
0: <laughs> my Vinegar Syndrome copy shipped Yesterday, Mackenzie. Oh
1: God, I am waiting for the moment I have a little extra money on my check, and I am getting that 4K because I've been seeing Mm -hmm. people. I'll leave you on Showgirls, but like, yeah, I've been seeing people on Twitter unboxing their editions, and it the art inside looks gorgeous. I desperately need that copy.
0: I'm very excited, very very excited. Um, before we move on, I just want to highlight, as a lot of people are apt to do, you can almost miss the very last little tidbit on these yeah. uh, announcements they are bringing back by popular demand a couple encores uh, notably the last picture show the bogdanovich film which is fantastic thief the michael mann debut which is also fantastic yeah 100 percent a future criterion connection episode um jonathan demi's something wild as well as california split cutter's way and ghost world so i just wow. wanted to call those out just for uh just for educational sake, because a lot of people will, you know, kind of fizzle out by the time you get down to the very bottom. There's usually some amazing movies that they've hidden down there. But, yeah, what a what a month to look forward to, Mackenzie.
1: Oh, what a month. I am excited. Everyone go watch Showgirls if you haven't seen it yet and email us about how much you hate it, how much you love it. <laughs> but we're not talking Showgirls today. We were talking, honestly, not too different, but still quite different. Uh <laughs> Federico Fellini's eight and a half is what we're talking about today Ian, please bring me into the world of Fellini
0: will do One of the greatest films about film ever made, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half marks the moment when the director's always personal approach to filmmaking fully embraced self-reflexivity, pioneering a stream-of-consciousness style that darts exuberantly among flashbacks, dream sequences, and carnivalesque reality in turning one man's artistic crisis into a grand epic of the cinema. Marcello Mastroianni plays Guido Anselimi, a director whose new project is collapsing around him, along with his life as he struggles against creative blocks and helplessly juggles the women in his life, including Anouk Ami, Sandra Milo, and Claudia Cardinale. An early working title for Eight and a Half was The Beautiful Confusion, and Fellini's masterpiece is exactly that. A Shimmering Dream, a Circus, and a Magic Act, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. Mackenzie, <laughs> you
1: got a lot of italian some of those pronunciations. <laughs> had a lot Oof. of italian names to pronounce there <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do, not my forte funny whenever i'm doing my duolingo and the names that are in the examples are always like laura and it's like laura <laughs> like it's like it wants. Laura. and if i don't say it like italiany it like won't give me the points it's like no 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 uh <laughs> ian so i actually am not 100 percent sure about your history with fellini or what films you've seen by him this was a first watch, right? This was a film first watch for both of us. Oh, you've seen eight and a half before.
0: Yes, for our listeners, I nodded aggressively at Mackenzie. No, this is not a first watch for me. I have seen eight and a half. Eight oh, and a half was in the okay. was in my run of getting uh acquainted with Criterion. I was like watching a lot of the greats. The red shoes, um, Persona, um, a lot of totemic criterion collection films. Um mm. so I watched eight and a half a long time ago, actually, at this point relative to what i have watched in the past two years it feels like a long time ago at least um and in that run i also watched knights of cabiria which i think is probably spoiler my favorite uh fellini film like i i love knights of cabiria i find um i find fellini's wife uh julietta massina to be an exuberant performer and you know you were talking about this and what's coming to the channel next month but i'm excited to see Lestrade as well because she's the star of yeah that. um i believe that was actually like uh written as a love letter from fellini to her um like a role for her to truly chew on so um those are the two fellinis i've seen a buddy of mine who i've mentioned on the podcast not in name but in spirit uh the the gentleman who got me into criterion films and back into cinema in general uh, is a huge Fellini fan every Christmas. Mm. He and his wife watch Armacord. Um, oh wow, it's like there, it's their, it's their major perennial, um, or major annual. I don't know if I'm using that word right, uh, but <laughs> I don't know no, either. uh, yeah. I, I, I at one point uh, was tempted to buy the box set, but um, mm. yeah, I I don't have that much of a history with Fellini. Um, Mackenzie, what is your history with Rob March I'm uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> Fellini.
1: I mean, yeah, like I'll get into it. When I was 14, a film named Nine came out and I had no idea who Federico Fellini was because I was a 14-year-old girl in Tennessee. So why the hell would I? And um, yeah, I loved that movie a lot when I was a teenager and I still enjoy that movie even if it's very bad, quote unquote. I have a theory that like the letterbox community specifically hates it because they have such a reverence for Fellini, right? I do have a kind of theory that that is why the letterbox rating specifically is so low. I mean, it was panned a bit by critics, but it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars and SAG Awards and Critics' Choice. So, like, it was, of its time, it was a film people somewhat respected, because Rob Marshall, I think, is a very good director. Um, Well,
0: I will say that I think the, I think there's a huge reverence for Fellini, and I think if we're talking about the letterbox community, I think there is a, uh, I think there is a... um, Put it lightly, a distaste for Rob Marshall. I don't think people really like him. Ugh, I'm him not and Baz. This is, I have to fight. Yeah.
1: I have to fight for my life on Letterboxd standing yeah. those two those two men. Yeah. Um, but I love Rob Marshall, and I I like Nine. My review on Letterboxd, I think, is just I turned my feminist brain off when I watched Nine, and that's that's how I live my life. And I love that movie. So I was aware of that, and I think I kind of knew it was based off some movie when I was like 14. Never really thought about it that much. Uh, and then when I was getting into the Criterion Collection, I was, I think I mentioned it literally last week where I was like, I started to try to watch an order. I was like, I'm going to watch the Criterion Collection in order like a full psycho. And one of the early spines is Amarcord. So that was actually weirdly my very first Fellini movie, which I think is a bad place to start because it's just like this kind of weird meandery sprawling, vignette-filled thing about his childhood, and it's very Italian in like the weirdest ways. Um, uh, just like large-breasted women, like shoving teenagers into their boobs, like things like that happen in Amherst court and it's just, you're like, what is happening? Um, and I remember being like, kind of mid on that movie because I was like, I don't know what I'm watching. I don't know who this guy is. And uh that was kind of the only Fleet i had watched and, and eight and a half always felt like this kind of white whale. Like I knew I needed to watch it and I just never sat down to. And so a couple days ago I did watch Nights of Comedia. Uh and I, I enjoyed it. It was a little slow at the top for me. And then the second half really started kicking in a bit more for me and I started liking it, I think, a lot more. Uh and I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen that film, but the ending I thought was really uh, beautiful and beautifully acted. Uh, and I and I and we were texting about it. I found out that was the basis for a musical I adore, Sweet Charity, which is a film and musical I, I also loved. It's funny because I I also loved Sweet Charity in high school, so I loved all of these musicals that were based off of Fellini works. But I never actually saw Fellini's uh, movies until until recently. So that's kind of my history with him as a filmmaker.
0: Well, Mackenzie, um, you know, having talked a little bit about Nine being your first foray into this, I, I, <laughs> we were we were texting a little bit before we recorded today, and you said that Fergie reminds <laughs> you of one of the characters in this. No, no um, Fergie
1: is the character in Nine.
0: Okay, is it a direct? Is it a direct? Uh transposing of uh eight and a half nine or is it like (laughs) loose like what's going Um, on there
1: it's pretty direct i think the structure is a little different it's definitely less dreamy i would say like um if anyone has seen chicago which i think is a perfect movie musical rob marshall kind of if you the Chicago stage show is kind of a cabaret it's the characters yes they have scenes but they're all wearing black they're doing the fossy, minimal sets minimal props it's very kind of cabaret showy and obviously when Rob Marshall brought it to the screen he leaned into the musical numbers sort of being within the psyche of Roxy Hart the main character so the musical numbers we see I think I think it's a brilliant adaptation of the way he weaves her sort of dreams and her psyche into what the musical numbers are it's how she views the world and I think he takes that same approach with nine so it's less like overtly dream sequencey like eight and a half is with his kind of dream vignettes and more the musical numbers represent those escapes from reality. Um, and it's definitely more structured by the women. Like, the, I think the women are the most important aspect of a, of Nine. Um, and so, like, each woman has her own kind of song in which she is like, this is our relationship. And these are the things I need that I'm not getting from you. And this is blah, 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 blah. And then he kind of has his big song at the end where he's having a breakdown. Um, but it's pretty similar. I mean, all the women are pretty similar. The the He has, obviously, the wife in the film. She's played by Marianne Cotillard, I think wonderfully played by Marianne Cotillard. Penelope Cruz plays the mistress. She was nominated for an Academy Award for that role. Uh, And she has a very sensual song that is so much fun. Um, Again, sorry that I love (laughs) nine. Um, And so like there's the wife and then Fergie plays Seragina and she has a song called be Italian. That's this huge production number uh, that I love. And so there's they're the, still the same. The costume designer who he interacts with for like two lines in this film. She's actually a bigger character in the musical. Um, the actress who's kind of always complaining. Uh, she's played by Nicole Kidman in Nine, and she also has more to do. His mother has a little bit more. Like all of the women's roles, I think, are actually upped in Nine because they each have like a song and a very distinct like moment of need from him that pulls him further apart from himself. Um, so I would say structurally, it's very similar. It's funny, the reporter, who again has a single line, she has a bigger role in the musical. And uh, instead of being an old woman he doesn't care about, she's a sexy young Kate Hudson, who he definitely wants to sleep with. So they they yeah. did, they did kind of upped the sex a bit <laughs> with some of the ladies. Um, but it's pretty, you know, I was recognizing a lot of scenes. I think Fellini is definitely more, It's there's a more personal touch. There's more abstract uh, imagery. But in terms of the the basic storyline of like he's trying to he goes to a spa to sort of escape the stress of this film, these women sort of haunt him, um and uh, like like all of that is there in nine. So it's it's pretty one to one with with minor differences. I would say.
0: Fair enough. I mean, well, speaking of the dream sequences, I think that's one of the things I find most fascinating about eight and a half is the way in which the kind of magical realism elements start to creep in and blur the lines between reality and fiction um you know i you know especially the sequence where he's screen testing all the women in his life Mm -hmm. i think is one of the more interesting uh sequences in the film and just truly i think i read this somewhere i don't want to claim any thought necessarily as an original of mine but I think it's a really interesting one that like to the artist, the lines between fiction and reality are somewhat inconsequential. They matter less um, Mm. because that is your life is art and your life is storytelling. So when these lines start to blur, um, I think that that's like one of the really interesting things that somewhat mirrors Fellini in this respect. Again, it doesn't seem like we have that much of a, history with Fellini um mm-hmm. but I'm just curious like what is like your appreciation for Fellini after this film because it feels like it is such a personal film I almost feel like this would be a better seen film after watching a lot of his earlier stuff I mean it says the name is eight and a half according to Fellini himself that this is his eight and a half film
1: yeah, I I definitely think for me, you know, this is only my third Fellini. I definitely think for me this is the best looking of his films. I loved the direction of this movie. I loved the visuals in this film and so I definitely was more uh moved by even just the visuals than I was by his other two I've seen. But I agree that like I was hoping to catch more of his early stuff and I just didn't have time this week. Um and I do think that an appreciation I could see being deeper checking out more of his early work to understand even where guido is right because guido is Fellini, and being Mm -hmm. able to sort of maybe understand where he's at more by by contextualizing it with the rest of his film i think would be interesting and i also like what you talked about about this kind of feelings of the artist because i think that he's Working with such an interesting dichotomy, right, of like Guido is a liar. He is a bold-faced liar. And as artists, it's your job to tell the truth. You tell truths about the world through art, through film, through these mediums of storytelling. The job is to tell The truth of the world to to represent stories on screen, and I find that dichotomy of a director who is like, it seems like physically unable to tell the truth, uh, is interesting. And I love when even his wife Louisa, like she doesn't, she's like she knows he's lying. She's like, look at him, he thinks he's telling the truth. He really thinks he is honest right now, and I know he's not. And I love that the dream sequences are where we see his honesty. I think the dream sequences are where we see the kind of crack cracking open of his brain and the truth spilling out, and that's when it's also, I think the film at its most uh, filmy, right? It's at its most sort of film dream-like state is when the truth is actually kind of being expressed in artistic ways. And so, it, again, it's just a, that layer of that meta. There's so many meta layers to this film. Uh, and I think that's that's definitely one of them in terms of the way he uses yeah. dreams to express truth.
0: Yeah. I love you mentioning like the point of uh, storytelling whether it be film or not is like to express truth um you know and you, you talk about how uh guido is a bald-faced liar <laughs> um, but but in that isn't that fellini like telling so much truth is like you know calling himself out for lying um and i, I might as well get this off my chest now i, I did not like this movie
1: mm, okay okay okay
0: yeah um i didn't really like it the first time i saw it and i didn't like it anymore the second time i see it um and you know i I'm, I'm coming out with this truth my truth right now because i'm gonna find it i was gonna find it really hard to dance around the issue <laughs> even speaking like somewhat intelligently about the film um but when when talking about how fellini is putting like this um character on screen who's so uh unlikable and is supposed to be a, a reflection of himself and is telling truths about himself even though the character is a liar I find that kind of dichotomy between like, I oh, know I'm calling myself out. So like you got to like me or you got to be okay with me. And I I don't think that's necessarily what he's saying.
1: Mm-hmm. There's
0: going to be a lot of contradictions from my mouth over the course of this episode, maybe. Cause
1: like, <laughs> that's okay.
0: It's, it's a, it's a, you know, give it this. It's a strange and interesting movie. Yes. Um, But by Fellini doing that and just being like you know calling himself out in the character i'm like i kind of roll my eyes and i'm like all right great um and like not not to spoil what's coming dear listener but like this this is something that i see in another character from another film in the criterion collection and i love it and i like Mm, it mm -hmm. um so maybe it's a performance thing but also I, I like masriani uh and i find him to be a very uh interesting performer like he's in one of my favorites la Notte. um but yeah no i i uh one of our friends uh host of the uh, i think film explorers podcast a recently debuted podcast josh uh wrote in wrote in his review that like he's just not on the wavelength and i think i'm also not on the wavelength
1: that's so interesting. I, I wasn't sure. I thought I was getting the impression you lo- liked it. I do. I do have a worry and audience coming from a host of a criteria podcast. This is going to sound so stupid, but I do have a worry that my love of nine affected this like watch because that I like was more kind to it because I have a love of this other stupid musical that like I understood the themes going into it and uh, in a way that like, I already had opinions about the theme, the, like thematic elements in the film. And so I was able to like find the things I liked in it. I think more because I was looking for them. I don't know. I am. Cause I was like, at least for the first chunk being like, I don't know if I'm really compelled by this. And I honestly, <sighs> I prefer the story structure of Rob Marshall's nine. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, just because I do think that like the women get more of a voice in that film in a way that I think is necessary to the thematic elements of because to me, it's funny that this movie is talked about as like a movie about making movies. When I think it's absolutely about a man who is terrified of death, who is egotistical. I, I was talking to Rachel about like Freud's idea of the death drive, right? Like getting yourself as close to death as possible because you're so terrified of it. And I think he uses his relationship with women to to move closer to death. My, uh, I've, it's very silly, but it did make me think of that exchange in Moonstruck, another film in the Criterion Collection that I desperately hope we cover one day, where. Um, the Olympia Dukakis' character, uh, this is not a spoiler. This is just like the whole plot of the film. Her husband's cheating on her. And so she asks other men, why do men chase women? Why do men chase women? And her theory is that they are afraid of death. And at one point she speaks to Danny Aiello's character and he says he feels that because God ripped a piece of a rib out, out of Adam to create Eve, men are always chasing the other half of themselves to which Olympia posits, well, why would you need more than one woman? And Danny Aiello says, "I, I suppose because men are afraid of death." And I think that that whole exchange in Moonstruck, like, captures the film for me. Like, it's never this did not read to me at all as a film about making films, as it's described in the in the descriptor. I do think it is about a man terrified of death and unable to uh, unable to figure out how what that means to him now that he is feeling inadequate, that he is feeling he is at the end of his career, at the end of his rope. And not even the most beautiful women in the world can make him happy. And like when this easy prop you were using to fulfill yourself is no longer fulfilling you, uh, you then have to see these props as human beings. These women that you've hurt uh, are not just tools for your happiness. Uh, I don't know. I think, but again, all those themes I love in nine and I was picking them here, but now I'm worried that my brain rot is so deep that Rob Marshall made me more like apt to like this film. I don't know. I can't tell where I land I mean, on I it. Don't, I don't think that's a bad
0: thing. In fact, I, you know, DMD you before we, you know, got on today and I was kind of like, I kind of wish I'd seen nine uh, <laughs> almost as like Even a primer to have some yeah. like, you know, have some context. Stop. It's, it's, it's a, it's something you love. The Arab go. It cannot be bad. Oh, that's subjective. Mackenzie. Um, <laughs> and also you have great opinions uh but also like i agree with you i don't really think this is a movie about filmmaking like no a film about filmmaking doesn't necessitate um you know a director uh setting up a dolly shot like on camera it doesn't necessitate doing screen tests even though that that is something that happens in this film that we say you and i is not about filmmaking um but I whole wholeheartedly agree with you that it's more of like about the fear of death, about the feelings of inadequacy and not to give another hint to our listeners to what we're covering next week. But like, I, you know, I feel like this directly inspired that film, mm-hmm. um, but um, no, like and the, the, the only reason I really give the hint and say that is because in my head canon, almost my approach to viewing this film was like, this is these dream sequences and these, Magical uh movements in the film are like the fever dreams before death, and I think the final sequence the final shot more more so in this film just kind of goes to back up that theory for myself is like it's a very extravagant sequence in which he's gathered every woman and every person that he's met along the way, and it's very um otherworldly and very baroque um and it doesn't feel real, so I almost feel like you know uh guito has died and like this whole harem sequence that is uh you know pre- preceded that is like a fever dream leading up to the death i i often find this like it was all a dream or it was all in the second before he died to be very boring actually explanation mm. um and i've like assigned it to this and i've almost thereby made the film boring for myself um it, it- it's just It's just this maybe, Mackenzie. Uh, Does your feminist brain turn off when you watch Eight and a Half?
1: I mean, I guess. Because the more I'm thinking about it, Again, I hate that this movie, uh-huh. this podcast is becoming about <laughs> Rob Marshall's Nine. Um, because, you know, it's funny, the harem sequence, I loved, and then it turned into a place I didn't love. I loved them turning against him. I loved them being like, wait, why do we let him treat us this way? But then it ended in a place of, oh, he's a little baby. We need to, we need to, we need to be, we need to feel bad. Yeah. yeah I was like, no, exactly. no, no, man. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, you know, like every single song in Nine is sung by a woman, every except for his big, like he has like two songs he sings to, the, to open and close the the musical but like and I know I'm biased to musicals if you don't like musicals you're probably gonna hate nine but like I like musicals I love that musical theater uses music to express the internal feelings of the characters and in that film and, and musical and then subsequent film you know the songs are used so the women can say how they feel they can express like what is going on and what he has done to them and how they feel. And in all of the sequences, because they're happening in Guido's mind, he is having to sit and take it. And there's this brilliant number where Marianne Cotillard, as Luisa, his wife, is the song's lyrics that was written for the film are basically like, you have taken every ounce of me. I have nothing left to give you. You have ripped me dry and I am a shell of a person because I've been with you. Take it all. And Guido has to sit there and absorb that. And if anything, I'm like, man, is Rob Marshall's the more, yeah, more like feminist internal film because it is le- allowing the women to have voices. Which Fellini is obviously focused on his own voice in this, and I think that's also okay. Like, he's making a film about himself. Of course, his voice is going to be the one that is centered. um But maybe there's room for even more self reflection. And I do think, again, that we're not spoiling, but I do think next week's film. I do think the creator of that film and the character in that film, I do think in a positive way for me as a viewer goes harder on that character. It doesn't um, give him as many outs as say Guido has, I guess, if that makes sense.
0: No, I completely agree. Um, And this kind of just gets back to my initial point about the film is it's like, well, I said I was a bad guy. You you can't blame me for being a bad guy, <laughs> and I, I I get so annoyed uh, by that in life and in art. Mm. Um, there's so much of this, like we need to separate the art from the artist, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it not to not to talk about another movie uh, that's not Eight and a Half, <laughs> but it really reminded me of Tar, a favorite of oh, yours yeah. and eyes. Yeah, yeah. In many ways, um, I think the biggest difference there is like the film that we'll be talking about in a week in the film that we're talking about right now is a portrait of an artist by that artist about how awful they are. Mm-hmm. Tar is different. It's the deconstruction, it's a deconstruction of power dynamics in modern society. But yeah. I was just reminded of that in that, that film does it so well because it is somewhat disconnected from the subject Yeah, um, and it can be critical of the subject and it can be objective about the subject. Uh, the subject and artist of our film next week very uniquely is uh, feels authentically critical of themselves, whereas in a way, I did not feel that Fellini was authentically critical
1: mm. of Guido.
0: I thought there was a lot of care for Guido, and I've seen a couple reviews on Letterboxd that highlight this, that there's a very sympathetic treatment of Guido. I would agree. I don't think that's necessarily like a bad thing, and I don't think that's wrong. It just didn't really sit well with me, because my... Uh, feminist brain was not turned off during watching this <laughs> to, to i just i felt so deeply for his wife mm-hmm. um i felt so deeply for even his mistress i mean yeah like i it's just like carla louisa gloria like all these people are treated like such crap throughout the entire thing and um he just feels very irredeemable and it really gets me into like this quandary Mackenzie when we think about art and we think about protagonists like we've even talked about this you and I in private on this very podcast like we don't need our protagonists to be heroes we don't need them to be likable like human beings are flawed and complex and it's really fascinating and good even when we put those types of characters on screen and it has me doing this thing that I do a lot with movies where I try to actually like get at something a little bit deeper. That's not even analyzing the specific film or plot, but like, why didn't it work here for yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Like, I don't know if I, 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 like we've, you've talked a little bit about some of your reservations or qualms with eight and a half, but like, did it work for you? Like, <sighs> were you endeared at all or like at all interested in what was going on in Guido's interiority?
1: You know, I, I do think this conversation is making me doubt the feelings I initially walked into this recording with. Um, oh. And again, I do think that my affection for Nine is did pepper my feelings about this film quite a bit. And I do think in that film... Daniel Day-Lewis plays Guido and I think he's, I mean, he's one of the most brilliant actors alive right now. And I, I think he's great in that movie. He's doing this very hilarious Italian accent. And I, uh, I think it's great. And I think that that film, obviously because there's distance goes a little harder on Guido and his mistreatment of the women. But the more we talk, I'm like, yeah, like Carla, especially in both versions of this story really gets me when she's sick in bed. And it's like, he can't even be bothered to really be there for her in the way she needs um, after Dragging her out here and sort of disrespecting her, and uh, I think Nine especially goes further to show that he is so disinterested in this affair at this point, but she is so in love, Uh, and it's and Mm -hmm. it's it's this film doesn't even really give her a chance to, yeah, to like I I think that's really what's hitting me now, and it's 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 the lack of thought I guess that goes to how these women feel because we have to be centered on Guido, and so I do think it it eliminates the the affection or empathy i might have had i do think i was caught for the film itself i think i was caught up in the spell of the filmmaking like i really thought it was a beautiful movie i did enjoy a lot of the 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 literal filmmaking of this movie in a way that i think it caught me in its spell a bit when i was watching and where i might have left the film rating it something else i think this conversation has made me question myself more um, but yeah, I would say that Guido is not a very sympathetic character and I don't need him to be, but I need the movie to be aware of that. Like I need the movie to also be aware of the fact that like, I don't need to sympathize with him. But obviously Fellini is because it's him and I don't blame him for that, I guess. Cause like, why, 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 I, I, I wouldn't expect him to not identify with, with Guido and, and, and sympathize with that character as a filmmaker, um so yeah, I think you're right in terms of with tar, maybe that distance helps, but then with next week's, i do I, I, it's successful for me there, so that'll be really interesting to be able to talk about these two films back to back and maybe once I rewatch that film interrogate why it works for me in next week's movie and maybe why it works for me less here um but yeah it's really it's it's strange it's it's a conflicting film for me,
0: yeah, you know and i i've been you know you're talking a little bit about uh the um you know the filmmaking and how it really pulled you in like i don't want to get my cinephile card revoked here or anything but like (laughs) as i continue to fall deeper and deeper in love with films and specific films at that like the i've been re-watching a lot of movies lately and i've really noticed that like i appreciate like really um high quality cinematic storytelling like interesting cinematography high octane camera moves like i appreciate that stuff but what at the end of the day. I really love is story. Mm. I've said this on this podcast, but it, that 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 love for story specifically only deepens as like time goes on, and I explore more movies and really hone my own taste. And you know, with eight and a half, it's like I I see a lot of what Fellini's doing, and I can recognize how influential this has been on people like Scorsese. Uh, I see a, I, I, I can really see a lot of. Uh, influence on like the the new hollywood in this like i can mm-hmm. see them having a love this film like picking up on some things from bogdanovich and you know other um you know movie brats mm-hmm. but for me uh there wasn't a lot to be like compelled by in the story uh i'm, I'm not a very religious individual so yeah, like yeah. the religious elements of eight and a half didn't really do it for me um i don't know I, like my biggest fear honestly in recording this episode coming here to talk to you about this today that was that i wouldn't have anything to say about it so i'm glad i have some thoughts but like
1: this has been a really fun conversation yeah yeah no and i, I mean i know we have to we have to wrap up soon i feel like we're kind of we're, we're going in circles a bit and i am so interested to see if you'll watch nine i might watch it tomorrow um but yeah i agree though like the catholicism was mostly there to me for me to like represent that intersection of like Sexuality and sexual repression, I guess, that I think has definitely peppered his relationships with women. Uh, and Saragina being that sort of symbol of, s- s- like, he, you know, he wants to dress Carla up like Saragina. He wants to recapture that, like, sexuality he felt as a, as a, kid which is a weird thing to say but i do think that's where it's coming from um he wants to that excitement of seeing a woman's body at that age right i think he's trying to capture that youth again i think that's for me what the catholicism stuff is but i was looking at my notes one of my last big notes i think we've hit all the major things is the most interesting scene to me was the scene with his sister And it was the scene where a woman was given a voice where she told him, like, this is your fucking life, dude. This is your shit. This is what you're doing wrong. And this is what you need to fix. Uh, And that was the scene I was most compelled by. And I'm thinking about next week, which we will get into. Maybe the difference is I do think the women in that story, in that film are given time to voice uh, their resentments, their love, their opinions, their souls to, the men in that film. And maybe that's the difference. I don't know. Maybe we just love women. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, um, We're drinking that respecting women juice over here. Okay.
0: <laughs> oh, well, uh, Mackenzie, that sounds like a uh, final thoughts. Do you have anything else to add and possibly a star rating for eight and a half?
1: Um, no. I mean, I think again, I, I thought the filmmaking was really, really lovely. I like a lot of the themes, right? This death drive, this, sexual repression this this feelings of failure and failure as an artist specifically what the truth is i love the themes in this movie i was leaving this the the watch at four stars i might be teetering the three and a half based on this conversation because you as a wonderful podcast host and friend through this conversation are having me interrogate i think my feelings about other, going a little bit deeper i feel like i went deeper in this conversation in a way that feels really really great um but it might have pulled my rating down to like a three and a half but, but a heart. I do like this. I really want to revisit it after I watch more Fellini. Absolutely. Um, but Ian, I, I'm assuming it's going to be lower than mine. Tell me your final thoughts and your rating. Uh,
0: you know, um, it was kind of a slog. I had watched this once before, um, and I was really excited to revisit it. I was actually hoping through the expansion in my world, my cinematic journey, have you uh that i would have had a different appreciation for it i thought maybe i was young and stupid back then and the reason it bored me is because i was easily bored um turns out i'm not easily bored it's just not my taste um no i just found uh guido to not just be like un, you know n- unsympathetic which is fine like i have already mentioned it this episode tar is one of my favorite movies of recent like I adore that film. I adore that performance. That character is heinous. Like, it doesn't need to be a connection to the character, but I need to be compelled by the character. I need to be compelled by something, anything. And I couldn't find anything really to be compelled by in an Eight and a Half because I found it to be a little bit of a, you know, sorry to use a crass term, blowhard. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you know, I just was like, God, gee, give me a break. So I was kind of like just waiting for this one to be over sorry I'm sorry cinephile community I'm sorry all of letterboxd uh you can at me I will ignore (laughs) you um but you can also write into the show and tell me why I'm wrong and I will happily engage with constructive feedback um yeah so I I I appreciate the filmmaking though um there's no denying that this is an achievement um so I'm sitting at two stars
1: that's what I felt I felt it come in I felt it I felt those two stars slamming into me
0: (laughs) <laughs> um so yeah but uh you know Mackenzie uh we don't have anything to connect to this week because this was a fresh pick by you yes. but we've been hinting at it and... I wonder
1: if people have guessed it by now I think we've been a little heavy-handed and if you've guessed it points to you
0: Yeah I I I I would be surprised if you hadn't but I would also not be surprised if you had That phrasing was really weird, I apologize. (laughs) But, Mackenzie, um, I'm very excited to announce that what we'll be watching next week um, is, by the filmmaker's own admission, uh, a direct descendant of Eight and a Half. And for that, I'm gonna read off the logline, as well as the synopsis from Letterboxd. All that work, all that glitter, all that (laughs) pain, all that love, all that crazy rhythm, all that jazz. Joe Gideon is at the top of the heap, one of the most successful directors and choreographers in musical theater, but he can feel his world slowly collapsing around him, his obsession with work has almost destroyed his personal life, and only his bottles of pills keep him going. Ladies and gentlemen, we are watching Bob Fosse's 1979 masterpiece, All That Jazz, um a recent discovery for me that I loved and talked about on this podcast. I'm so excited to chat about it with my co-host and friend, Mackenzie. Yes,
1: and it's a musical, baby. I mean, kind of. It's kind of a musical. Yes. So.
0: Yeah. It's got like one or two numbers. But hey,
1: they're fucking awesome. So.
0: They are amazing. That last number is beautiful. And long. And
1: long. That's um, all I want. I would watch a whole yeah. movie of just that number. Not to spoil next oh, yeah. week. <laughs> Sorry. No. <laughs> um,
0: so yeah, if people want to watch it, uh i believe it is not streaming on any major streaming service Mackenzie you are a resident to be expert is it on Tubi? um
1: it is not it is like it's notoriously very hard to find i don't even know if it's streaming we you and i are gonna have to scour some turnip trucks maybe to find this because it is very yeah. hard to find
0: i might be using this as an excuse to go spend top dollar at a barnes and noble or oh. a uh, half price books or something Ooh, i don't know what if i do that too um,
1: okay i might do that
0: mm, <laughs> be fun uh but yeah if people want to uh, see it as I have done before. I recommend please go check out uh, a copy of all that jazz from your local library if you have one accessible to you. Otherwise, maybe rent it on a streaming service. But yeah, next week all that jazz. If people want to write in or send us a voicemail about their opinions of eight and a half today's covered film or next week's covered film, they can write or send us those voicemails to the Connection at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read them out or play them on the show. Um,
1: Mackenzie, I think that's it. Do you have anything else? Nothing else from me. Decided to pop out some jazz hands after a week of smoking cigarettes in Italy. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Two packs a day. Well, <laughs> well, next week, folks, it is showtime. Uh, but
1: Mackenzie, until then. See you next week on The Criterion Connection.